ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Jeff Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital, who back in April, they launched their first two ETFs. So there's the Double Line Opportunistic Bond ETF, ticker DBND, which this is an actively managed uh, go anywhere bond fund. And then the Double Line Schiller Cape US Equities ETF, ticker CAPE, great ticker which this is a uh, sector rotation strategy. Now, of course, Double Line has sub-advised on some other ETFs. Uh, I, I think the uh, Spider Double Line Total Return Tactical ETF, ticker TOTL, that, that's one many people are familiar with. And Double Line is still doing that, but these two new ETFs they launched are their first direct ETF offerings. And we're talking about an asset manager with well north of $100 billion here in Double Line. So I'm looking forward to visiting with Jeff about why they entered the ETF space. Uh, we'll take a look at these two ETFs and then find out what their plans may be uh, moving forward. Should be a great conversation. Now, also this week, I have another large asset manager who entered the ETF space not too long ago. I'll be joined by Anthony Caruso, co-head of product specialists at Dimensional. And you look at what uh, Dimensional has done with their ETF business. I mean, they did not enter the ETF market until late 2020. But listen to this. They're now a top 10 ETF issuer, over $60 billion in ETF assets, and they're actually the largest actively managed ETF issuer, like period. Now, I know some people will say, well, they've primarily done that with some big mutual fund ETF conversions, so maybe it's not that impressive. But even if you put those conversions aside and simply look at their inflows, their ETFs have taken in something like $20 billion, which that alone would make Dimensional a top 20 ETF issuer. So I think it's tough not to be impressed with uh, what they've done. And Anthony and I will talk about that growth and touch on their ETF lineup and overall approach to investing. Now, to start this week, I have Vetify's Tom Lydon on the line with me. Tom is a vice chairman of Vetify. And we're going to go around the horn on several topics, including just chatting about the current market environment, which has uh, certainly changed a little bit since the beginning of the year. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. How has the uh, summer been treating you? 
It, it's been great, Nate, and hope you're enjoying it too and keeping cool. I am. Uh, I feel like I've worked way too hard this summer, not to get my violin out. I would have liked to have had a little bit more downtime, but I've kind of just powered through for better or worse. So I hope you've relaxed more than I have. Well, I, I feel the same, and it's not like things are slowing down at all in the ETF space. Every time you turn around, there's more innovation, which makes it fun for you and me. No question. And then, of course, you you layer on everything going on uh, in the markets. And maybe that's a good place for us to start. So I do have sort of a grab bag of topics for us today. And, you know, I was thinking back, you and I haven't visited since early July. And you look over the past month or so, the market environment has shifted a bit, right? It's been a much different experience than, than what we saw in the first half of the year. And I look since July 1st, so the S&P 500, since that time, it's up over 8%. The NASDAQ 100 is up about 13%. Even you look at broad bonds, which were absolutely bludgeoned earlier in the year, worst start ever, they're positive since, since July 1st, up about a percent. So I, I guess time to start. I'm just curious from your perspective, what are you seeing right now? Are you surprised by this bounce? Uh, do you think it's real? Is this just a, a bear market rally? How are you feeling about things right now? Well, I, I think like most investors and advisors, you're somewhat relieved. There'd been a lot of bleeding in both the equity markets and the bond markets. But as you point out, especially over the uh, the last six or eight weeks, we've seen some pretty big rebounds. I mean, off of the mid-June lows, uh, the, the QQQs alone, the NASDAQ 100 is up almost 20%. Uh, Kathy Wood's lineup is up almost 35% off those lows. And we've seen some nice stability in the S&P. And what's surprising is also the, the small caps, Nate, you know, with the boom of 17% off of those uh, June lows, it's pretty impressive as small cap stocks have really outperformed expectations, number one, but also when you think about rising interest rates, and the strong dollar, that's actually been favorable for small caps too. So ETFs like the uh, iShares, IWM, pretty impressive as a lot of advisors are turning to diversify into small caps for the first time in 10 years. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but any thoughts on current valuations? I, I mean, if you look at a lot of the metrics out there, valuations have come down. They seem like they're in a much more reasonable range. But of course, that's going to be highly dependent upon what earnings look like moving forward. Uh, any thoughts on on how stocks are valued right now? Well, they're uh, you, the the PE on the on the S and P five hundred is seventeen, which is right at the ten year average. So not too cheap, uh, not too expensive. Kind of Goldilocks, just right. And with the blended growth rate of six percent. Um, which is actually the lowest that we've seen um, since Q4 of uh, 2020. It's one of those things where, yes, earnings have come down a bit, but not to the point where it's devastating. We're still seeing more beats than disappoints on the, from an earnings standpoint, and that's good. But I think the big thing, Nate, and you and I are looking at this all the time, we've got clarity from the Fed on what they're trying to do to fight inflation. So there's less concern about rising interest rates. There's more clarity in the bond market. And there's some sense of optimism that inflation will get out under control, which is bodes well for both the bond market and the stock market. So that's a good segue here because you had sent me over some uh, polling questions that Vetify recently ran for advisors. And if, if you don't mind, I'm going to steal your thunder here. I want to go through the results of two of these that really jumped out at me. So the first question uh, that you asked advisors was, how would you characterize your outlook for the rest of the year? And I would say the responses were mostly split, but did veer positive. So 6% said they were very optimistic. 50%, 50 said they had reserved optimism. 39% said they had mild pessimism. And then 5% said they were very pessimistic. And then I want to combine uh, those responses with the other question that Vetify asked advisors, which was, where do you believe the market will be 12 months from now? And 65% said higher, 65%. 19% uh, said lower, and then 16% said flat. 
But overall, and especially on that uh, that second question, I mean, I, I would say fairly bullish sentiment, especially given how difficult things were in the first half of the year. I, I know you looked at those questions. Were you surprised by that at all, that bullish sentiment? It's been a decisive change just in the last 60 days, Nate. Um, you know, the, the AAII sentiment ratings uh, just a couple months ago were the worst that we've seen in 20 years for self-directed investors. Now, again, we know most advisors try to take advantage of bear markets and negative sentiment, but for the most part, advisors across the board were negative from a sentiment standpoint 60 days ago. You know, we've always got our finger on the pulse as far as surveying advisors every week. It was really nice to see that positive change. And if you followed the old traditional strategy of sell in May and go away, you missed out. And uh, advisors have been relentless about continuing to provide good diversified asset allocation, especially in the bond market. Nate, you know, we saw negative flows in the first four months of the year. That's come back strongly. No, it's a good point. And to what you were saying earlier, I mean, I know it's a bit cliche, but I think it all comes back to the Fed. And if advisors are looking out on the horizon and, and maybe they do think that economic growth is going to slow a little bit. I know we had that really hot jobs report on uh, on Friday, but I, I think the thought is that maybe the Fed is offering a little bit more clarity and maybe they're going to slow their pace of, uh, of rate hikes. And so that's giving a little bit more confidence. But, you, you know, you, you still have this tug and pull or, <laughs> with, uh, with the Fed, right, where, uh, you know, it's it all comes down to how they're going to approach things uh, moving forward. How aggressive are they going to be? I, I just think that's the key thing to watch here. Well, you're right that it has been for the last two years, the number one concern of advisors out there. Um, however, it's nice to see that they're less concerned and a little bit more optimistic, uh, optimistic as we go into the final part of the year. I know we're talking markets here, but I, I do want to talk ETFs here a, a little bit. And uh, the past couple of weeks, I've dug pretty deep into ETF flows overall, but I know you track these pretty closely as well. Anything catching your attention on ETF flows this year, or even just over the past month or so, given the markets? Well, aside from the nice shift that we saw in fixed income uh, of money coming back into fixed income markets, we've seen consistency in the equity markets for sure. You know, I think a couple of things, um, a uptick in currency. Uh, currency hasn't been something that advisors have talked about regularly. But when you look at, uh, for example, the percentage increase in flows, it's been over 35% year to date uh, with $1.4 billion going in. And, and you look at ETFs like uh, the Invesco long dollar ETF UUP, there's a lot of feeling that we're going to continue to see a strong dollar during times of uncertainty. Uh, and we know that affects affects those big global companies that are diversified both in the U.S. and overseas, and then back to the idea that it helps the smaller companies. We may be at a period of time where it gets back to small companies outperforming large companies that they have historically, but that hasn't been the case in the last 10 years when you've got those mega cap fang stocks that have just blown the rest of the markets away. Yeah, the one thing I think is interesting looking at ETF flows now, even though it's been a uh, really, I think, a spectacular year overall for ETFs given the markets, I think it's a bit tough to read the tea leaves right now when you look at where money is going. I mean, you have money going into all types of fixed income ETFs. I don't know that you can read a whole lot into that. I think you have some people playing a potential recession and getting into longer dated uh, treasuries. You still have people piling into the short end of the curve on fixed income. You'll see... Uh, flows all across the board on equity ETFs. It's really tough to make heads or tails of, of exactly what investors are doing. I agree. There's certain segments you can look at something like currency ETFs or, I, I don't know, commodities uh, flows into gold ETFs and maybe try to draw some conclusions. But overall, I think it's tough to make <laughs> heads or tails. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people are now saying, hey, commodities, you've missed it if you haven't been in there. Uh, there are a lot of smart people on Wall Street that are saying, we're only halfway into this game. And gold, as you know, has been the worst performing commodity, tends to be a second half player. So keep an eye out for, for gold ETFs, uh, along with those minor ETFs too. Uh, flows still seem to be pretty strong. 
Tom, you mentioned ARC earlier, and one of the other questions you asked advisors that caught my attention was, have your views on the investment benefits from fintech innovation shifted in the past year? And I was curious to see the responses here, uh, again, just given how challenging performance has been in the space, right? You, you, you look at ARK Invest, they offer the ARK Fintech Innovation ETF, ticker ARKF, uh, and then they have exposure to the space th- through their uh, flagship ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK. Both of those are down uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of like, like 45 to 50% plus this year. And so the responses to your question, th- these are interesting. So 37% said they are more bullish than before. 46% said they have not changed their view. And only 17% said they are more skeptical than before. And again, just like we were talking about on the other two uh, poll questions I, I gave, especially that second one, there's a pretty clear bullish bias here. I, I, I was just curious, what did you think about that one? Again, ARC scenario, I know that you uh, you spent a lot of time researching. Yeah, well, uh, the flows um, hold up when you look at that. I mean, yes, they've had devastating performance since February of last year. However, flows continue to come in. Nate, I think we've discussed this. If you had a 5% allocation, you bought at the high in February of last year, what would you do if you're an advisor? Would you sell um, or would you maybe average up to that 5%? And I think most are uh, doing just that. We continue to see flows, more shareholders going into the ARK ETFs. And if you've got that five to seven year horizon, and some of those companies, as you point out, um, are down 70 or 80%, companies like uh, Roku or Zoom or Teladoc, you know, Tesla's down a bunch. Also, they have some exposure in the crypto space that has been whacked pretty hard. So look, if you've got a long-term time horizon and you want to make up uh, into these go-growth areas that that Kathy and the team are really good at, um, it's just been a really tough period. And especially if you're younger, I tell my kids they've got something that I don't and that's time. So make time work for you and increase your allocation by a little bit. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know that you're not big into predictions, and and this is a uh, a crystal ball free podcast. Typically, I always say my crystal ball is broken; it's like completely shattered. But if you had to uh, speculate, Tom, do you think Kathy Wood and in Ark have maybe put in a bottom here uh, again? Going back to July 1st, I, I ran the numbers on ARKF and ARKK. ARKF is up 26 percent since July 1st. ARKK is up about 20 percent. So, so do you think that uh, perhaps a bottom is in here? So, Nate, for, uh, I do, and just for giggles, let's let's put in a bet that uh, not not one year, but two years from now, um, if if they put in a, if it hasn't been a bottom, if it hits a new low, I'll shave my head, and if not, you have to shave yours. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm uh, already heading to that hairdo pretty quickly, <laughs> so we'll, we'll both be winners uh, uh, either way. But, you know, it's just interesting. The reason I asked that question, Tom, is you look at the action in the markets that, that we're talking about here, you know, again, since July 1st or going back towards the end of June, and you do see, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily what ARC holds, but you do see the meme stocks and, and some of the junkier stocks, unprofitable companies have really moved. And it is reminiscent of last year, right? Early last year. And just going back to what I was saying with the Fed, I mean, I think, you know, the question is, if let's say, let's say inflation continues to be a problem, and the Fed does have to stay aggressive here, clearly, that's not going to bode well for, you know, quote, unquote, longer duration growth stocks, right? And, And so I wonder if this is a little bit of a false move. Now, if, if we think that the economy is going to slow a little bit, the Fed's going to back off, then, then yeah, maybe you can make the case that people are going to want to look for more growthy plays in that type of environment. So, so I get that. I guess that's why I asked the question is just looking at the recent action here. It's interesting to me and, and to wonder whether or not things have bottomed. Well, I think you can't paint all those stocks with the same brush. And, you, and when you look at each of them, you know, for example, Roku in the streaming space, it's really competitive in its model, especially with all the other streamers having challenges. And based on the price that you can get it at today, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Teladoc, I'm, I'm not sure about you, Nate, but if I'm, if, if I'm not in an emergency situation, but I want to check in with a doctor, 
I love being able to do it on video as opposed to having to go to the office, wait for a couple hours and that type of thing. So each and every stock that they have, there's a, there's a case for it. Um, there's a better valuation than there was from 12 months ago. And long-term, will there be growth? They're not all going to be winners, but I love the fact that they're innovative and disruptive. Well, and again, regard, I've said this before, regardless of what you think of Kathy Wood, she deserves a lot of credit for sticking with her approach. It would have been very easy when things were going sideways to pivot and, and maybe water down the strategy. She hasn't done that. And so my point in bringing that up is if this bounce is real and uh, we, we continue to see a move upward, I think if you're invested in her funds, you know what you're going to get, right? There's not going to be a surprise. You're going to capture that upside. And again, I, I think that she deserves credit for sticking with that uh, conviction. Um, Tom, just a, a couple of minutes left here. You mentioned crypto and this is sort of on the topic of fintech innovation, I guess, uh, too. I want to ask you about this new ETF from Schwab last week. The Schwab Crypto Thematic ETF, ticker STCE. And look, look, new launches from Schwab are always going to get my attention just because you don't see that see them that often, right? I mean, Schwab is pretty conservative with bringing new products to, to market. But here, they jump right into the crypto space. And you look at the Schwab lineup overall, it's pretty plain vanilla, right? I mean, this is a thematic play. They don't have that on their offerings. And here they go all in uh, with a blockchain or crypto ETF. I'm just curious, what did you think of this ETF launch? Yeah, um, so we're clear. They don't own crypto. They don't own crypto futures, but they do own companies that own crypto, like MicroStrategies that have bet the farm on crypto. Um, they do own platforms that, that let their clients own crypto, like Coinbase and Robinhood. Uh, they own crypto miners like Hut8 and Hive, and also exchanges like ICE that owns the New York Stock Exchange and the and CME, even chip, chip makers like NVIDIA. So they've got a good cross-section, but uh, I, I think, uh, albeit we're not going to see, probably not going to see a future-based Bitcoin ETF sponsored by Schwab, it is a great way to get into that ecosystem. Um, and boy, for picking the right time, crypto's not going away and it has been crushed lately. So the probabilities that they're going to be able to put big numbers up in the next five years are really good. Good for Schwab for being uh, forward thinking and doing this. I love it. Well, and in typical Schwab uh, fashion, they came in and undercut everybody on price, right? I think this thing's what is it like 30 basis points? 30 yeah. yeah, which is amazing. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit. So here, here's my hot take on Schwab launching this product, because as I look at the, I'm going to call it the quote unquote blockchain space, it's crowded, right? There are a lot of uh, entries in this space. And so you have to wonder, even with somebody with a wherewithal like Schwab and coming in a low price point, it, it causes me to go, okay, well, why did they launch this product? Here, here's Here's what I came up with. I actually think Schwab is a, a huge believer in crypto overall, or may, maybe better said, Tom, I think that they know they're going to have to offer crypto trading and custody to compete with other brokerages longer term. So I think this is a way for them to uh, sort of position themselves, as you were saying, as forward thinking in crypto. And honestly, I would actually expect them to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF once the SEC gets comfortable with that. Now, that may be 2035 or whenever, but I, I expect them to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF. And not only that, I think it's only a matter of time before they offer direct crypto trading and custody, where an investor would be able to own Bitcoin and maybe some other crypto right next to the ETFs in their brokerage account or IRA. So I, I think this is a way for them to... Uh, sort of baby step into the space. I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that. That was my my hot take that I came up with. Yeah, no, Nada, I agree. Um, it's just not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, the bloom's off the rose in crypto right now, and we're not going to get any spot ETFs uh, in the crypto space through the SEC, especially anytime soon. So like you said, hey, is it five years from now? Is it 10 years from now? Absolutely. They've got a wonderful platform. They have great technology and they've got a great client base, both on the self-directed and the advisor side. So it makes a heck of a lot of sense. I'm with you. Just to put a book in on the segment, I've given a bunch of uh, returns since July 1st. One other one I'll, I'll toss out there. Bitcoin up over 20% since July, uh, July 1st. So maybe we're getting a little bit of a bounce there. But Tom, always fun chatting. Enjoy the uh, the rest of your summer. Thank you for joining me. You too, Nate. Thanks so much.
That was Tom Lydon, vice chairman of Vetify. Finding innovative strategies for you and your clients is what we do at Pacer ETFs. One of our newest ETFs, ticker ODDS, is the only ETF that gives investors exposure to online gambling, esports, and video game development. If you're interested in the future of digital entertainment, odds may be the three-legged strategy for you. Visit PacerETFs.com odds for more information. I'm now joined by Jeff Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital, who back in April, they launched their first two ETFs. These are both actively managed. The Double Line Opportunistic Bond ETF, ticker symbol DBND, and the Double Line Schiller Cape U.S. Equities ETF, ticker Cape, fantastic ticker symbol, which together these already have about $120 million in assets, by the way, which is pretty good. Now, of course, with Double Line, you're talking about an asset manager with well over $100 billion in assets. So here's yet another very large asset manager getting directly involved in the ETF space. And I now have Jeff on the line with me. Jeff, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, good morning, Nate, and thanks for uh, having me today. So, Jeff, anytime I see a larger, uh, well-known name brand asset manager enter the ETF space, I'm always very interested in hearing the backstory. So I thought to start, can you just talk about the decision-making here, why DoubleLine decided to get directly involved in ETFs? And I know you've sub-advised on some ETFs, but why get directly involved now? Right. So we uh, partnered with State Street back in 2014 to launch our first actively managed ETF, and it's under the Spider brand, and, and that's under the ticker TOTL, um, and that's the DoubleLine Total Return Tactical Strategy. And we entered into the ATF space under sub-advisory because we wanted to partner with the best-in-class partner that knows how to administer uh, ETFs and taught us a lot about the landscape. And so we have a great relationship with State Street. We still run uh, over $2 billion of assets in the the TOTL strategy. And we actually sub-advise three ETFs under the Spider brand. Um, But as time goes on, we wanted to be able to also offer other strategies, which potentially could compete uh, in the space with the Spider brand. And so, again, the, the goal here is not to cannibalize anything on the State Street relationship, but be able to offer what we what we deem as strategies that are needed in the marketplace. And so, coming into the space uh, on the equity side with CAPA, and thanks for the uh, the kudos on the ticker name there. Uh, that, that's a that's an actively managed or that's a, um, a systematic strategy that we actively manage as well under the uh, advisor shares model, uh, but also to offer our bond offerings that has a little bit more flexibility than what we have uh, in the TOTL product. So again, um, it's a different product, it's differentiated, and over time we may launch other products as we see investor demand in the ETF space. Well, let's look at these first two ETFs, and then perhaps we can come back to some of the future plans that uh, DoubleLine has in store. So the first ETF is the DoubleLine Opportunistic Bond ETF. Just take us through the strategy here. What, what is this designed to do? What does this hold? Yeah, so th- this is a strategy that's supposed to sit in the intermediate term space. Uh, you can think of it as a core plus strategy if you want to use the lexicon from the institutional world. But what the goal here is to be able to outperform the Barclays U.S. Aggregate Index over time, uh, hopefully do it in, a, in a, a period or a process that will give you volatility around the ag, but do so in being tactical and being able to invest globally across all sectors of the fixed income marketplace. So the goal is you start with the Barclays ag, you look at kind of the risk profile of what that uh, is trying to achieve. And remember, the Barclays U.S. Aggregate is an investment-grade-only index, so it has a lot of interest rate risk in it. Uh, it's very focused on U.S. assets, and so as a, as a client or an end user of ETFs, you want to open up the space and be able to invest in things that are also outside of that index. And so our process is one that we've been using for many decades. 
um, back at our former employer and for over 12 years here at DoubleLine, where we use our asset allocation committee uh, to uh, try to identify what are the best opportunities on a risk-adjusted basis through the various sectors of the global fixed income marketplace. So unlike the Barclays U.S. aggregate, which just focuses on treasuries, agency mortgages, and, and investor-grade corporate bonds, this ETF has the ability to also buy below investment-grade bonds, bank loans, uh, in emerging market debt, non-dollar debt that's uh, denominated outside of the U.S. Uh, we can buy uh, asset-backed securities, ELOs, uh, commercial mortgages. And so what you see here is it opens up the opportunity set and gives the potential to, live, to deliver a higher return than the aggregate, but also be able to risk manage those uh, exposures and integrate them across the portfolio. I know it uh, comes down to the, the type of investor, but h- how do you see this being used in a portfolio? And the way I'll, I'll frame that is the benchmark for the CTF is the ag, but you mentioned this is a core plus strategy. So as I think about where somebody might own this, is you view this like as a replacement for a U.S. aggregate bond ETF? Does it complement something like that? How do you see this being used in a portfolio? Yeah, I mean, we view it as a replacement for the ag um, because, again, uh, the ag is not something that's actively managed. Uh, you're at the mercy of the issuance of both the U.S. government, um, the agency mortgage market, and as well as corporate America. So as there's larger amounts of issuance of those securities, it becomes a larger percentage of the index. And so it's something that you know uh, fixed income investors should think about is that the larger indebted a company is or, or the government is, the larger the percentage of exposure you have. And that's, that's really antithetical to think of the credit quality of someone, right? Uh, the more you borrow, the better you know, or the larger the allocation should be in an index. And so we think that by, uh, by uh, actively managing a strategy and being able to identify different opportunities, it gives you the ability to try to outperform that, that part of the market. So as an end investor, what you're trying to do is deliver high-risk-adjusted returns for your client. And so, again, this has guardrails around it. It's not going to be 100% emerging market debt, or it's just going to turn into a bank loan portfolio. But it's identifying these credit opportunities, but also being able to get some exposure to that risk-off type of asset that's government-guaranteed. So, again, this is a process that we use across all of our strategies um, at DoubleLine, where we we try to risk-integrate across the credit sectors, uh, across the the risk kind of off-sectors from from the treasury market. And so by combining those exposures, we think you can have a smoother experience over time and the potential to generate higher returns. So again, uh, as with all actively managed fixed income, uh, we think that this is a perfect uh, substitute for those that don't want to be just at the mercy of the issuance of the government and the investment-grade corporate bond market. And just out of curiosity, are you running a highly similar strategy on the mutual fund side? I would assume so, given this is a core plus strategy, but is there a mutual fund counterpart that maps pretty closely to the CTF? Yes, there, yes, there is. And, and they have different risk and return objectives. And, and this, this uh, ETF, DBND, uh, is expected to have a little bit higher of a risk profile than, than our publicly available mutual fund. But uh, if you look at our publicly available mutual fund that's comparable, it's the doubling core fixed income strategy. And so this is kind of a core plus, so we expect to have recycle a little bit higher uh, excess return, potentially a little bit higher tracking error or volatility. Um, but DBLFX is the double line core fixed income fund, and it's uh, around a ten billion dollar mutual fund today. So this is something that clients uh, use extensively in their portfolios. Uh, but again, we wanted to offer something that's a little differentiated. Again, it's differentiated from TOTL as well but be able to give people access to the ETF market. And so our client base has, has really reached out to us and said, we want to use ETFs on a go-forward basis. And so that's the reason for the development of DBNT. I want to ask you about the equity ETF here in a minute, but uh, Jeff, just given, I know uh, your fixed income prowess and certainly double lines fixed income prowess overall, I have to ask you about the current environment. And listeners right. of this podcast, look, they know I've been saying for a while that Fixed income is the most challenging area of a portfolio. Now, I, I think you can make the case that maybe things have gotten a little bit easier since the beginning of the year just because rates have come up. Uh, but what should be a few key considerations for bond investors right now? Like what should be front of, front of mind as an investor looks at the bond allocation in their portfolio? Yeah, I mean, you need to know how much credit risk you have in your portfolio, and you need to know how much interest rate risk you have in your portfolio. It sounds very simple. It can be very complex. And so 
the idea in the fixed income market today is it's really under pressure from this higher inflationary environment than, than we've seen in really 40 years. And so a lot of investors have not experienced this high level of inflation and the volatility that's transcending through the bond market today. And so what you see in, in the bond market, what's driving rates, is that you have kind of two factors, and I call them push and pull. Uh, what you have is the pull down from potentially uh, the slower growth environment. Uh, because of the higher inflation, uh, people are worried about there being some kind of stagflation or a lower growth environment. So what that's done is moderate interest rates. However, you get the pull of, sorry, you get the push effect from what we see from inflation today. And this is investors being very concerned about this high level of inflation. And when, what, what really drives rates here, too, is the, the Federal Reserve. And so the Fed is, is very concerned about the interest rate environment we're in today. And so these high levels of inflation are causing a push higher in rates as well because the Fed is also going to react to that function and raise rates as well. So we're not through the hiking regime. I know that the market had calmed down a little bit post the last FOMC meeting. But what you find is that you saw the Fed governors really talk up the market and say, no, we're going to continue to hike. And so uh, I think the, the goal of the Fed right now is to have tighter financial conditions, which means more volatility. It means higher interest rates. And it also means more volatility in credit spreads. But this also, as you point out, presents a very nice opportunity where investors, let's say, uh, a year ago um, were bidding high-yield bonds down to the, the double B component of the high-yield bond market, which is the highest quality of the investment uh, below investment-grade area. That market yielded you know, in, the, in the mid-threes last year. Today, the Treasury market yields nearly that amount on the front end of the yield curve. So there's a big opportunity set out there where investors – can position portfolios today, um, earn yield in the marketplace that's 4 5 6% on a lot of these asset types that are relatively high quality. So the repricing of the bond market gives you an opportunity on a future basis to potentially be able to now generate real returns. When I say real returns, that's outstrip inflation. So uh, if you look at a portfolio on, let's say, a two-year basis right now, and you believe you can put something together that has a diversified credit mix, uh, has some offset to the risk-off assets like treasuries and agency RMBS, what you find is that you can, you can do that and potentially be able to actually generate a real positive return. And that's because the inflation expectations are set over the next two years. The bond market, uh, the pricing of it, thinks it's going to be sub-3. It's actually 2.8% or so today. So if the bond market's right on the inflation forecast, um, there's a really good opportunity to yield um, something that's significantly more than inflation, which is something we haven't seen in many years. So from the standpoint of thinking about the fixed income marketplace, you need to be calculated. Uh, you need to be very careful in it today. But also, we, uh, and this is talking our own book, but uh, we think you need to be very active in that. So you need to sell into some strength. You need to buy into some weakness. You need to be very tactical about that and understand the risks that are sitting within your fixed income allocation. I think that is really well said. It's just interesting. In my prior segment, we were talking about uh, ETF flows. And if you look at the flows into fixed income ETFs this year, and even more recently, you can see the confusion in the marketplace where investors aren't quite yeah. sure what to do. You see flows into longer duration treasury ETFs. You see, you see flows into shorter duration yeah. bond ETFs all across the, uh, the credit spectrum. It's interesting. Yeah, and I think what you're finding there in that flow data, and, and that's something that we use in our analysis, not just fundamentals, but you, you've got to follow the money and understand where that flow is. And so where you've seen bond flows in the last couple of months, as you said, it's on the front end of the yield curve because, look, it yields about 320 on, on, on two-year treasury. So not a bad trade to not have a lot of interest rate risk. But also that long-duration asset, as you said, is historically been that risk-off part of the yield curve. And that's something we have in our portfolios a little bit. We have some of that long bond. Even though we think interest rates can push up a little bit from here, it's the what if we're wrong scenario and what if we actually get that, that recession that some people are forecasting. And so I think that what you said, that confusion out there in the marketplace is because um, it, it's, a, it's a volatile environment and we don't think it gets any easier over the next couple of months. And that's because the Fed is going to continue to hike uh, into this environment. And also what you're going to see is that liquidity is going to drain a little bit out of the system, which is the goal of the Fed through their quantitative tightening program. So I think what you're finding with investors is that they're trying to figure out how to manage this situation. And it is one of these unprecedented environments where the Fed's trying to roll off $95 billion a month off their balance sheet, which is a significant reduction in liquidity in the market. 
So that's why we think it's going to be a little choppy. Uh, you need to be very tactical in this environment, and you need to be patient as well. So I think that's what you see with investors is that they're kind of spraying money around the parts of the market to try to build that diversification. And that's something that, that we're doing inside of one single wrapper with DBND. All right, let's briefly move to the equity side, which I'm not sure that's uh, any less challenging at this uh, point in time. So the other ETF that Double Line launched is the Schiller Cape U.S. Equities ETF. Um, do you, you want to just briefly explain this one? What, what does this do? Yeah, so this is a large-cap U.S. equity strategy, uh, which focuses on trying to do sector rotation within the cheapest parts of the U.S. large-cap space. So this is something that we do offer a comparable product uh, in the mutual fund space, which is the Double Line Schiller Enhanced Cape. Uh, we try to enhance that return uh, a little bit in the mutual fund structure, and that's the ticker DSEEX. DSEEX is, is the actively managed mutual fund. And so what, what's, in, what's in the ETF wrapper is it's essentially thinking about sector rotation. So what it does is it uses Professor Schiller's CAPE ratio to assess the, the valuation within the sectors of the U.S. market. So you can think about how people use the CAPE ratio at the overall market level to assess whether the market is cheap or rich. Well, the same thing can be applied to sectors of the market. And so that's exactly uh, what Professor Schiller worked on to, to help identify this type of strategy. And, and, and what you do is you, you look at each sector's CAPE ratio and you compare each sector's ratio to its historical average. And so this, this levels the playing field of valuation uh, where, you know, historically, you know, we know tech trades at a higher multiple than something like utilities. And so this allows you to give a comparability to say, where does this sector trade today relative to some of its historical trading ranges? And by doing so, what you can do is identify what are, what are the cheapest parts of the market. So it's not only buying things that are cheap relative to history, but you're identifying what are the cheapest segments of the market. So there's 11 sectors identified by GIX uh, of the large-cap U.S. equity space, think the S&P 500. Um, and of those 11 sectors, each month it is, uh, identifies what are the cheapest spots. You apply a momentum filter to that to kick out um, the, the sector that has the worst one-year total return. And why you do that is you're trying to avoid that value trap. That is something that's cheap, but getting cheaper just has bad breadth within the marketplace. You have four sectors of the market, and that's where you want to allocate to. And so this is a strategy we've ran in the open-ended mutual fund space. Um, where in, in the mutual fund, what we actually do is we access all of this through derivatives, we do swaps, free up all the cash, and allow us to build a bond portfolio and overlay that exposure. In the ETF, you're just getting this direct equity exposure in the marketplace. So that's the differentiation between the mutual fund and this ETF. And we've seen a lot of investors, especially with some of the challenges in the equity market, as you mentioned, uh, adopt the Cape ETF already um, as they like the strategy, they've seen it before, um, and they want it in a more, uh, hopefully, a more tax-efficient wrapper. And so, uh, as you mentioned, there's been significant interest in this KPTF over the first uh, five months of the life of it. One thing I'm curious about, obviously, this ETF is leaning heavily on the Schiller uh, index methodology, but this is an yes. actively managed product. So can you just explain that component? Where does the active management come yeah. into play here? Yeah, so the active, the active management is being able to try to uh, get that tax efficiency. So uh, we're essentially trying to replicate this index. It's done in a semi-transparent wrapper uh, to protect the IP of that overall index. And, and again, just not leak that out to the world so you don't get picked off or front run from that side. So the semi-transparent wrapper is something that uh, really got us excited about the ETF space to launch this. So uh, when we partnered with Barclays uh, back in 2013 uh, to offer this, this process, we were very, very cognizant the value of the IP, right, the, the, the methodology. And so we, we were very hesitant to want to release this out into an ETF wrapper. But with the prevalence of the semi-transparent methodology, uh, it allows us to kind of protect that IP uh, in the marketplace where it's not just slipping around. So people don't know exactly what we're doing. When I say people, the APs and market makers aren't out there. Uh, they don't know exactly what it looks like. And so the active management comes from the uh, essentially trying to manage the tax side as well as owning the underlying securities. And so we have discretion about that. Again, we're not taking views on those securities, but again, trying to have that tax efficiency, uh, being able to do in-kind versus cash. Um, so th there's a lot of different things that you can do to help manage that structure. And that's where the active component comes in. So uh, again, to date, we've been able to, to uh, create this product 
we've been able to really see some success from the client base. And so we think that, um, you know, this, this wrapper, this semi-transparent methodology is very, very useful. And so we're happy to, to license that from Presidian. Uh, and uh, ultimately, we think that this, this methodology is something that really protects the intellectual property uh, behind Professor Schiller's methodology. A question that raises for me, I know the opportunistic bond ETF that offers the usual uh, daily transparency that's a traditional ETF wrapper. Yes. And to your point, the, the CAPE ETF is using that Presidian semi-transparent structure. Why the distinction here? Is it just that the bond market is much more opaque and so you're not quite as concerned about getting front run or, or you know, what, what's the difference? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, if you open up the holdings of DBND, and as you mentioned, it's, it's daily transparency, so you see exactly what the portfolio was last night, and just open the portfolio, and most investors won't be able to go and access those securities, especially in things that we, we have a, what we think we have an edge in, uh, like securitized products. So the, uh, to go out and rebuild and replicate that portfolio is going to be much more expensive to the end investor than being able to uh, just access it through DBND. Uh, also, the same thing holds for market makers and APs out there um, that, you know, again, to, to replicate the entire portfolio, uh, it's just more cost effective to be out there. So you're correct that we're not concerned about being front run in the bond market. And also, this is something if you look at like TOTL, STOT, EMTL, the, um, the things that we sub-advise from State Street, they have daily transparency as well. So we've gotten very comfortable with that over the last eight years, and we haven't seen any instances of, of uh, the market trying to take advantage of that. So, again, uh, especially as the funds grow and we hold more securities, we just don't think uh, that there's really that, that, uh, there's that front-running or anything in the marketplace. The problem with the, the KPTF is that we also have a publicly available mutual fund, uh, we run this for separate account clients as well, and so we don't want those clients to be front run as well. So, uh, because the uh, Cape, um, when we run like the mutual fund and we do this all through derivatives, uh, we're essentially trading things at the close. So we don't want um, people to know exactly what that looks like. And with the ETF, because it's doing things intraday, and there's the ability for the APs to see that, that was something that caused us concern over time, which was the hesitancy of us to launch this uh, previous to uh, 2022 and really getting comfortable with that active shares model. So again, th- there's a key distinction there. But what you find is that liquidity in the marketplace, when you look at our bid offer spread, uh, you look at how they trade, both products trade with a similar bid offer spread. So they're relatively tied to the industry. I credit our lead market makers for doing that as well. And again, just people understanding the way that we run money at Double Line helps those things trade better for the end client. Jeff, just a couple of minutes left here. I said we'd circle back around to Double Line's uh, future ETF plans. Can you tell us anything about the uh, the Double Line ETF roadmap, even if not specific strategies, just h- how you plan on approaching the ETF space overall? Yeah, well, we're very methodical when we roll products out. And so if you look at our mutual fund lineup, um, you know, we have roughly 20 products out there, and it's taken us 12 years to get to have those 20 products. So um, what you'll find is that with the ETF, we're looking to kind of have a similar roadmap. And so when I say similar, uh, we're going to wait for client demand. So when we launched our mutual fund business, we started with two mutual funds. We, we rolled out one or two a year um, just as we saw client demand. And so the idea behind the ETF platform is to see what clients want from Double Line. And so what we've done is we've hired a capital market specialist to help us trade, uh, again, to help tighten up that liquidity, uh, good relationships across the street. Uh, we've we've uh, hired a couple of dedicated salespeople who are focusing on this area. So uh, as you would expect with the, what you've seen with us with Double Line in the past, the idea here is not to throw 40 products at the wall and just see what happens. Um, so you're likely not to see us uh, uh, launch like thematic ETFs. We'll leave that to other people to provide that. But where we have an, uh, an advantage or where we think we have the skill set is what we'll launch things in. And so the roadmap right now is to see if we have success with these two products, see if there's investor demand, talk to our clients, talk to prospects about this. And uh, over time, you will see more ETF offerings. And so uh, when we were hiring people for this process, I said, look, it's a three to five year roadmap. That's the runway. Um, and maybe we only have two products over that period. But the goal is to be successful, to have commercial success, to for our end clients to feel good about it, have financial success. And so through a cycle, that's what we try to do. So will you see more offerings in the ETF space? It's very likely. Um, it may not be in 2022, uh, but potentially in 2023, you may see the third ETF offering. So 
uh, over time, we want to flush out, you know, our land, uh, our, our product offerings, and we want to make sure that, again, it's something that clients want. So the way we develop products at DoubleLine is that it's something that we want to invest in, uh, our clients want to invest in, but there needs to be demand, right? You can create great products, but if no one wants it, there's no reason to launch them into the, into the ETF space. So we'll be very calculated with them, and we're excited to be in the space. Uh, you know, I'm really glad that uh, the market has really adopted these so far. And uh, we feel there is the commercial success. And so what we want to do is continue to focus on what we do best, and that is be an investment manager. Run money, uh, do, the, do the products that we like to run, but also that we think are helpful to our clients out there. Well, Jeff, really enjoyed the conversation. Congratulations on the uh, new ETFs. Best of luck to you. Personally, I don't think you're going to need it, but best of luck to you. And thank you for joining me. Yeah, many thanks, Nick. I enjoyed the conversation and look forward to doing another one in the future. That was Jeff Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at DoubleLine. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Anthony Caruso, co-head of product specialist at Dimensional, who's now a top 10 ETF issuer, currently 24 ETFs, over $60 billion in assets. They're also the largest actively managed ETF issuer. And all of this has come in less than two years. You heard me right. In less than two years, they've gone from no ETF assets to over $60 billion dollars. And Anthony is now on the line with me from Charlotte, North Carolina. Anthony, great to connect. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. Appreciate it. All right. So if you're being honest, are you surprised by uh, Dimensional's ETF success up to this point? Or is everyone in your office like, yeah, this is exactly how we expected things to play out? Nate, uh, it's definitely been busy. Uh, you know, we're, I think, very fortunate to be in the place we are in partnership with our clients. And to your point, less than two years ago, we launched our first ETFs. And you fast forward today to quickly become the largest active ETF issuer with over $60 billion in ass- assets. I think it's just a testament to the partnership and trust we've built with financial advisors and institutions. And I think at Dimensional, you know, we launch investment solutions based on the needs we hear from our clients and the growth that we've seen of more than $19 billion in flows since each ETF has listed, I think, speaks to that. So to answer your question on being surprised, I, I, I would, wouldn't say we are surprised, but I think we've been really excited about the growth and opportunity uh, to be able to help financial professionals and specifically their end clients meet their financial goals. All right. So out of the 24 ETFs you offer, I believe seven were mutual fund to ETF conversions, roughly $40 billion, which, by the way, I mentioned this at the uh, the top. I know some people want to point to these conversions as a way to sort of uh, take away from what Dimensional has done so far. I would just say, look, Dimensional has already seen, to, to your point, nearly $20 billion in inflows to their ETFs, which that alone would make you a top 20 ETF issuer. But, but in any event, Anthony, uh, besides the conversions, I believe all but one of the dimensional ETF launches are essentially sister strategies of existing mutual funds. Do you want to just talk about the lineup overall? So I show 19 equity ETFs, four fixed income ETFs, and then a recently launched U.S. real estate ETF. Just give us a quick tour of the lineup. Yes, that's right. So 19 equity, four fixed, and one real estate. And to your point, you know, seven of the 24 ETFs they were tax-managed equity mutual funds, which we converted into ETFs, and that was the largest mutual fund to ETF conversion uh, in history. And so if you think about the tax-managed strategies, investors that are using those are looking to maximize after-tax returns, and that's something that we felt we could better deliver in the ETF wrapper with the additional lever. So that provides our strategies with not only the focus on maximizing qualified dividend income, but also 
seeking to defer some of those capital gains, being you know very tax efficient. Now, to your point, we've seen growth in terms of our flows. Or you know, 65% of them roughly is coming from all of the other strategies. And so, what are those strategies on the equity side? I really would bucket them into two camps. The first camp. Think about our market-wide ETFs, and then the second component, and we'll talk quickly about each one. On the market-wide side, that is, think of our U.S. Core 2 ETF, ticker DFAC. This is a strategy that allocates from large caps all the way down to small and micro-cap stocks, and then tilts towards the segments of higher expected returns, so value, size, profitability. It's a market-wide solution. The component strategies that we have on our equity lineup are more niche segments of the marketplaces like small cap or small cap value as in an example. And so worth mentioning across both market-wide and component strategies, you know, we have these across US developed international and emerging markets. Now on the fixed income side, we have four strategies, a core fixed income meant to be the ballast in the portfolio, we vary the maturity and credit based off of the opportunity and position towards higher expected returns. We have a short-duration strategy, an inflation strategy for those looking to preserve purchasing power, and then lastly, a national muni strategy, where we launched these four ETFs in November of last year. Now, to your point, Nate, you know, all of these strategies are based on the same approach to implementation that we've been managing portfolios for over 40 years. It's just done in the ETF wrapper. And I think to the other point you made earlier, what's most exciting is we're seeing flows across the platform, not only from the converted strategies, but the rest of the ETF lineup, which I do think is important and, again, speaks to the partnership we have with financial professionals. Anthony, one thing I'm curious about is the approach to fees here. So I show the lowest cost dimensional ETF is 11 basis points, and the average is about 26 basis points across the entire lineup. I believe the, the weighted or the asset weighted average is 23 basis points. But I had uh, FactSet's Elizabeth Kashner on the podcast last week, and she recently wrote a piece on ETFEs where she specifically singled out Dimensional. And she noted how in the active ETF space, which again, your ETFs are actively managed, which we can touch on on why that is, but she mentioned that you're capturing an outsized percentage of inflows. And I want to read this to you. She said, quote, firms like Vanguard, Charles Schwab, and Dimensional ETFs have figured out how to compete in a low-fee environment and have been reshaping the competitive landscape on their terms. It's no mean feat to garner inflows during a bear market and even more impressive to gain market share during a selling frenzy. You know, that's pretty good company to be compared with on on cost. Do you want to talk about the approach to fees here? Yeah, and I think it's accurate. You know, our strategies are priced more closely to passive than they are to active. Uh, And I think that's important for investors. And if you look throughout the history of Dimensional, we continually you know, enhance our investment solutions and look to pass on any efficiencies and the benefits of scale to our clients. And so we're very proactive. We take a long-term view uh, and have a long track record of actually reducing fees for investors passing on those efficiencies. And so just over the past year, as an example, uh, we've had more than 80 fee reductions uh, for on an asset-weighted average, more than double digits. And so I think that is important. Most of our strategies, or excuse me, all of our strategies are within the top quartile on fees, and many are in the lowest 10 percentile on fees. And so when you think about that, the reason that matters at the end of the day for investors is it's important to be in the top quartile. If you look uh, across time, one fees are one thing that you, you you can't control as an investment manager. And by doing that, when you look within that top quartile, there's a wide dispersion in terms of returns. Let's just take U.S. as an example. So what really makes a difference within there is you need to be thoughtful about what you're selecting. And often those strategies are going to be index strategies, which we look to enhance. And we believe a flexible implementation can really prove better over the long run. And so that's where it comes down to implementation. What are investment managers doing for me as a shareholder to better my experience? So sec lending, corporate actions, doing everything else behind the scenes to add value. And that's what we look to do. So, yes, you know, we agree uh, with their points and appreciate uh, the note that she wrote. Let's talk more about that uh, adding value aspect. And, you know, to your point, on the fee side, dimensional ETFs do look much more like index-based ETFs compared to uh, active ETFs. But I think when some people think of dimensional overall, they do think of you as being more index-based or, or systematic. So can you explain the active side? Because this gets us into that flexible trading component. 
Yeah, so I mean, central to overall just our investment philosophy, we have a belief in markets and that prices are fair and based on an aggregate view of all market participants. But not every security has the same expected return. And so what we want to do is use market prices to understand the differences in expected returns and build broadly diversified portfolios around that. So let's talk through the way I like to think about dimensional. We're not predicting the future. We're not trying to outguess market prices. We're systematically pursuing higher expected returns. Now, from a passive standpoint, I think we bring the benefits of passive and marry that with active. So passive, why do investors invest in passive? Now, you know this. It's broadly diversified. It provides them with exposure to that segment of the market. It's low turnover, which tends to lend itself well to tax efficiency, and it's priced competitively. Those are the three main reasons you hear from investors why they own passive. We incorporate all of those within our strategies. Our core strategies we talked about have, call it, 2,300 to 2,500 stocks in the U.S. We're low turnover, single digits. That tends to lend itself well to tax efficiency. And all of our ETFs are, again, within the lowest quartile on fees. But where do we differ? Where does the active come into play? Unlike an index, we have a daily flexible process where we're looking to consistently provide exposure to those segments of higher expected returns within markets. And that's something that we've done for over 40 years in mutual funds that we're now able to do in the ETF wrapper. And so at the end of the day, you know, why does that matter? Well, it matters because this approach that we have has a long-term track record of, of success. Take the past 20 years as an example. 88% of our equity strategies have outperformed the prospectus benchmark. Consistency and flexibility are really important, and that's really where the active comes into play. Anthony, just a few minutes left here. If we uh, zoom out a little bit and, and look at the bigger picture, I know when Dimensional first announced plans to launch ETFs a couple of years ago, and then when you ultimately follow through with that later in 2020, there was a lot of talk about how this might impact financial advisors who were big users of Dimensional Mutual Funds. Just because Dimensional is well known to have a pretty rigorous training program and approval process for advisors who want to use your funds. And I think for better or worse, uh, some advisors did sort of hang their hat on the fact that investors could only get Dimensional funds through them, right? There was some exclusivity. And so I think people were curious to see whether you launching ETFs might negatively impact those advisors and, and potentially even your mutual fund business. Have you seen anything at all here or heard anything from dimensional advisors who have expressed concerns or has it all been positive? Yeah, we've always worked with our clients to understand their needs. And when we think about our overall ETF platform, you know, we've heard positive feedback from our clients and being able to provide them with choice, whether that be mutual funds, ETFs, or the separate account business where we lowered our investment minimum. I think the one point that was crucial, though, for Dimensional was for clients that were less familiar with ETF trading, we spent a lot of time on education around trading best practices and working with our experienced capital market teams. Now, in terms of trainings or our conferences, we continue to provide that uh, to investors and insights and education around our investment philosophy and approach, and we will continue to do that. You know, we've done these both in person and virtually. And I think, fortunately, we made a large investment in studio and technology prior to COVID. So we were prepared when COVID hit. But these trainings and education, it's nothing new. and It's core to dimensional, our academic heritage, uh, and to be there for our clients. But what I don't want to lose sight of, though, is you know, where dimensional is today, being able to offer clients that choice around mutual funds, ETFs, uh, SMAs, and ETF models. And at the end of the day, you know, we'll look to help our clients and, you know, meet them where they are. And that hasn't changed, uh, nor will it in the future. In terms of moving forward, can you tell us anything about Dimensional's ETF plans? Like, should we expect more mutual fund ETF conversions? Can we see new strategies launch? What should we be watching for? And I know you're limited in exactly what you can speak to, but maybe just higher level, what should we expect? Yeah, again, you know, we are fortunate and do thank our clients to be where we are today in the ETF industry. Um, if it says anything about us, you know, we are very committed to our ETF business and wanted to stand up next to our mutual fund and separate account business. Now, for ETFs and what's in store next, we're going to continue to launch solutions that meet the need of our clients and have those conversations every day. I think on the conversion side, uh, you know, as I mentioned, those were tax-managed mutual funds that we converted. There's nothing on that as of now. Uh, in terms of what's coming the rest of the year, we do plan on launching four sustainability ETFs. 
three of those are equity across U.S., international, developed, and emerging markets. And then one is a global fixed income strategy. And I think just we will continue to build that out and offer clients the ability to build fully dimensional ETF models for those that are interested. Well, Anthony, congratulations to you and the Dimensional team on all the success so far. I'm sure it's been a lot of fun in the uh, the office, and I'm certainly <laughs> excited to see what the future holds for you. But thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. That was Anthony Caruso, co-head of product specialists at Dimensional. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com slash sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder of Strive Asset Management. We're going to discuss how they're applying what they call excellence capitalism to ETFs. And then Dynamic Beta's Andrew Beer will spotlight their managed future strategy ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.